Okay, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Proverbs. We are in chapter 21, and we'll get started here. Gaining biblical wisdom on how to deal with fools and their foolishness. How to, of course, not become these things or be these things ourselves. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, uh, chapter 21, we got a little way into this last week. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Love meditating on that as an image of Christ. Obviously, that's the, the Proverbs meaning expands beyond that, but it is beautiful to think of Christ, the streams of living water flowing forth from him and the Lord directing that in his abundance, in his providence, as he sees fit. Verse 2, every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. So again, if we would be right in the eyes of the Lord, that's the goal, not to be right in one's own eyes. That's how everyone is. <laughs> from, an, from the worst of unbelievers, he thinks he's right in his own eyes. So, not to be right in one's own eyes, but to be right in the eyes of the Lord who weighs the heart. We want to have our hearts conformed to the image of God's word, that word embodied in Christ Jesus. Christ is the law enfleshed, and so we want to have our hearts conformed to that reality Three, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And here's where we spent almost the entire session last week um, exploring different aspects of this biblical tree where the priority is clearly put on doing what's right. So this presupposes faith as one has faith in God who has atoned for our sins in Christ, who makes atonement for our sins. We pursue righteousness and justice to do the right thing. That's more acceptable to the Lord than um, having a sacrifice made. That's the Old Te Testament language. Or even just confessing your sin and being absolved. I mean, that's fine, that's great, that's a gift that God gives to us, but it's secondary to simply doing the right thing, doing the just thing to begin with. All right, so I don't know that we need to talk about that anymore unless you've thought on it over the week and something doesn't sit right with you. Otherwise, on to four. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the, la the lamp of the wicked, are sin. So this is quite a contrast, isn't it, to verse 27 of chapter 20, the spirit of man is the lamp of the Lord, searching all his innermost parts. But you have the spirit and the lamp of the Lord, and we won't go into the meaning of that proverb here, since we've done it before. But look at this just by way of even superficial contrast. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. 
So that is to say, the wicked see, that's what a lamp is for, in a way of haughtiness and pride, arrogance and pride. What are haughty eyes, do you think? Arrogant, how would you, how would you think about haughty eyes concretely? What comes to your mind? Judgmental, okay. So the eyes themselves might simply just be colored by judgment. We have this phrase, looking down one's nose at someone else, right? Putting yourself up high. So, yeah, this can be expressive of an internal reality. Disdain, disdaining others, seeing yourself as better than others, all of these kinds of things. But how about not so internalized? How about exterior? Can you tell someone's arrogant by looking at their eyes? Frequently, they're not soft. Frequently, the eyes of the arrogant take on a certain form, or even the way they hold them. Uh, You can think of arrogant expressions, even if only in the movies, performed by actors who are trying to demonstrate or show forth arrogance. They have certain ways of holding their eyes in a haughty or condescending manner. Remember what your mom used to say, if you keep making that your face, it'll get stuck like that? (laughs) I actually think it's kind of true. And I think, I mean, I, I don't want to get too crazy here, but you can largely study a person's face and, and be able to make pretty accurate predictions about who they are, whether they've suffered much or not, whether they've, uh, uh, even, even if they're subject to certain vices or virtues, you can frequently see that written on the face. And I'm not even making some sort of comment about the objective beauty of a face versus uh, the lack thereof. But the nature of the way the person carries themselves, holds their face, and expresses that over time starts to take root. Or a pencil in your mouth, which forces you to smile, your depression becomes alleviated. Ah, okay. So there is a neuro- so even the physiological there is a neuro- connection. Biological, yep. I like it because it's just kind of the other way of, of saying that uh, how you are, is, it can affect how you look. And so, yeah, then psychology comes along and says, well, let's change that. Smile a lot and you'll actually be happier. <laughs> and you, can't, you don't feel like smiling when you're depressed, so you put the pen in and let the pen do the work, but it works. Mm-hmm. Or mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Okay, so the haughty eyes, we can think of this as an internal reality. But I think we should also um, be willing to consider it as a physical reality, even if not manifest permanently in someone's visage. You can certainly, you can certainly see a haughty or arrogant look, can't you? If you're, if you're too pious, um, look up some kind of rap music video from the 1980s. You'll get the haughtiness, and it won't immediately be rated X. If you just type into Google, you know, rap music video right now, you'll probably get something rated X, and that's not worth seeing the haughty look. But that is that. But that music is general haughty, in general haughtiness embodied, isn't it? I'm better than you. I've got more money than you. I've got nicer looking women than you. I've got faster cars than you. Isn't that? Have I covered everything? I think I've pretty much covered everything. So it's pretty much a study in haughtiness. All right, so the haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. And obviously God's the one that sees that. It's kind of a 
Remember what Jesus says, if even their light is darkness, how great is the darkness? Quite apropos commentary here on this proverb. Five, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Yet another, who knows how many dozens of these slow down proverbs. But to slow down, to plan, to be diligent in one's planning, to be diligent in the putting into practice that plan. When setbacks and adversities come along, because you are diligent, you're not instantly going to throw it all down in a huff and storm away. You're going to continue with your diligence, and you're going to pursue until you have this abundance. On the flip side, everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. And that's true whether you don't take the time to plan something out, um, or even if you're just hasty and emotionally driven. The first adverse, you know, adverse, I can't talk today. That's great. That's my job. The first adversity to, or uh, difficulty to come along, and because you're hasty, you just go, that's it, I give up. So that, that in this proverb would lead to poverty. poverty. Now we know that, that is, that's true for people who succeed in life and for people who don't, just in a very earthly-minded mode of thinking. But there's also a spiritual reality to this. Jesus himself would have us sit down and consider the cost of being his disciple. Now, the cost can be very different from one disciple to another. But the potentiality for that cost to cost you absolutely everything is there. And you can't be a disciple. Jesus doesn't want you as his disciple if you're not willing to think that through and then be willing to be diligent and say yes. Because it may very well lead to the dissolution of your earthly family or their hatred of you. It may may very well lead to all kinds of uncomfortable temporal consequences or sufferings that you wouldn't otherwise endure. Only a fool would jump into following Christ like, oh yeah, grace, that sounds fun. Uh, That's not, in fact, going to be your experience as a Christian. So Jesus likens this, remember, to... Uh, someone who's going to build a tower, you know, you, d- you aspire in your mind, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to build a, what's a, famous, what's a famous skyscraper? I don't even know anymore. The Empire State Building, is that still famous? Okay, good. Getting dated in my analogies. So the Empire State Building, you say, I'm going to build the Empire State Building. When are you going to do it? Tomorrow. What resources do you have? I've, I've got about $700 in my checking account. And, Jesus brings this up as even, even a person with means, so they laid all the foundation and they can't finish and everybody just laughs. Now instead of coming by and being like, wow, look what they did, they laugh and say, wow, look how stupid this person is. They spent all their money on a foundation and nothing else. So Jesus uses that as an illustrative story. He also um, uses as an illustrative story a king who is completely outmatched and outnumbered. And if he's just going to hastily, foolishly rush into the battle, he's going to get stomped. And it's going to be a massive loss and defeat and loss of life and disaster for his kingdom. So likewise, we should be and plan to be diligent about our pursuit in the Christian faith. There are going to be setbacks. There are going to be afflictions. There are going to be failures. There are going to be attacks, internal and external. Plan on it 
and be diligent to accomplish the task anyway, to run the race, to fight the good fight, to be a good and faithful soldier of God. That's where that very active language in the New Testament comes from. We are indeed saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. That's not a description of the Christian life. The description of the Christian life is, as Jesus says, agonize or strive to enter through the narrow gate. So, this is in Jesus and in Paul, then, and also in this proverb, a reality of following God, that a wise following of God would be to be diligent. You know, I think about this too. I don't mean to be too pointed, but since mammon is just one of the most present gods in our current society, how much planning, how much diligence do people spend thinking about money and retirement and, well, what if this happens? And, well, what if that happens? And it's all for, at best, a few decades of this world where nothing's predictable or known anyway. How much time, by contrast, how much diligence, by contrast, do people think about their eternal life, their eternal inheritance, their eternal reward? Thus enters Christ's admonitions to not be rich in this life, but to be rich toward God, to not have your treasures here in this life, but your treasures there in heaven. And this is a regular refrain in the preaching of Jesus a recognition that if we would be diligent about the things of this life, how much more diligent should we be about things regarding and pertaining to eternity? All right, so thoughts to ponder there. To be diligent and not hasty. That's the chief contrast. Let me pause there, sip some coffee. Let me know if you have any comments or questions about this one or anything before us. Fine, please. I'm all the way up front here, please. Um, wasn't uh, Peter famous for being hasty? <laughs> a little rash. Yeah, I, I don't think that that's... I mean, I, don't, I think he'd agree. Yeah, I think he'd agree. So many of... Oh, I, think, I think virtually all of the unflattering accounts um, of Peter in the Scripture almost certainly come from Peter himself. He says, let me tell you how this went down. <laughs> Yeah, there is a rashness of character. You know, and I think, gosh, I've been thinking about this a lot. Be forewarned, a sermon or two is coming. I can feel it brewing. But there is obviously a great difference between the makeup of the saints of God. Vicar and I have been studying one of the ancient pastorals of Gregory the Great. He just points out how different people are constituted differently. That's so easy to, I mean, even though it's like a simple truth, like even children know that, that is uh, completely contrary to the religion of our age. Because the religion of our age says, you're all tabla rasa, you're all a blank slate. There are no differences. You all have the same IQ, the same strengths, the same weaknesses, the same potentials, uh, the same physical talents. Everyone is equal. That's a complete lie. That's like the, that's on the level of the, Oh, do you see the, see the king's beautiful clothes? No, actually, I don't. It's gross. That's the kind of lie we're living in that where everyone's equal. And this gets translated into the church where we just think of all the saints as being equal. 
Nothing's further, nothing, and, and that we're all equally blessed or equally gifted. There are actually scriptures in the New Testament that say completely, obviously, the opposite. The different gifts are given to different and in different measure. Even faith itself is given in different measure to different people. So, where I'm going with that is we need to take into account that there are people who are rash, like Peter. That's their constitution. There are people, there are people on the other end of the spectrum that are so, what, what would be, the word be? Unrash? <laughs> Tim, timid? Cautious? I like this, yeah. That, that becomes a problem on the other side. And there's everything in between. This is one of the things that Gregory is so wonderful at pointing out, is that we as people, we as Christians, are constituted in very different ways. So strengths for you might be weaknesses for me, weaknesses for you might be strengths for me, and so on and so forth. Furthermore, then, in what the Lord allows us to suffer and to be challenged with and to know and not know and experience and not experience, this all comes from the hand of the Lord as well. And we shouldn't treat each other like we're all the same and we've all been through the same. And in some instances, we shouldn't even have the same expectations we have for all other people. And I think that's a a kind of wonderful view you can have too, especially the older you get and you see people younger than you and you see various struggles that they're going through. And... It's not, it's not so much an acceptance, that would be the, it's not what I'm after, but it would be a recognition that some people are built the way they are and they're going to suffer with what they suffer. And you're, you're going to pray for them, you're going to help them, but it is who they are. And the grace of God covers them just as it covers you. And you want to help them along their way into heaven. But the idea that we're all going to like magically become some cookie-cutter form of Christian just isn't the case. I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's realistic. So, so should I as a pastor have the expectation that every single person in my church is going to pray the same amount of hours a week with the, with the same amount of passion and devotion and focus of heart as every other? I don't think so. I think that's completely ridiculous. I, don't think, I think that there are people who are built for praying more than others. We should all still pray. <laughs> But there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I kind of stink at prayer. In the same way that Peter might say, you know, I kind of stink at, like, not being rash. <laughs> Taking my time, slowing down. Uh, you just recognize it. There's other people who are really gated for service. They love it. There's other people who just die under physical service. You should still serve. But it's okay to recognize the difference. And it's okay to not crucify yourself that you can't serve as much as someone else. Or you don't pray as devoutly as someone else. Or... Whatever your strengths or weaknesses are, I mean, I could go on and on. I won't belabor the point. We should, we should accept and acknowledge a great diversity amongst the saints of God because the scriptures do. <laughs> the scriptures tell us it's normal and fine. And then we as a body of Christ can see that we're not all built the same way. We're not all thumbs. We're not all pinky toes. We're not all kneecaps or elbows. We all have different functions within the body of Christ, different strengths and weaknesses. Bring those out and support each other in them. Okay, so, yeah, I know that that was quite the little sermonette there. Maybe I don't need to preach it after, because like, you just brought up an example of being hasty or rash. Any other thoughts you have? There's one all the way in the back. Sorry to give you your exercise. Thank you. Uh, you, you reference the narrow door. Uh, and last week we talked about the law being on the Christ on the heart of Christ and heart, and the heart of Christ being in our hearts 
therefore we have the law. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking about the narrow door, are is that what you're talking about? The sense that in the sense that we have to uh, or should uh, keep the law as best we can, and that's the narrow door, or is am I missing the point? Oh yeah, I wouldn't articulate it exactly that way. Sure. So the, que- the question, if I recall, is something to the effect of how many will be saved? And Jesus, in his, are there many or are there few? And Jesus, in his typical way, doesn't answer questions that are above our pay grade. In effect, I do believe that he answers that less will be saved than, th- than will be damned. There will be more damned than saved. But his primary thing that he gets after, and this is very common when people ask Jesus questions, is he directs, he directs the question back to them. So, are there many saved or few? Well, how will you feel if Christ comes and the doors are shut and you're on the outside? So, repent. Um, are there many saved or are there few? The road to destruction is broad. The path to salvation is narrow. Strive as if your very life depends upon it, because it does, to enter through the narrow way. Properly speaking, the narrow way is Christ. Faith in Christ. What flows from that, of course, is obedience to the law and being conformed into his image. But we shouldn't view that door as like, okay, well, you, you can't skinny through that door unless you've been 91% faithful in keeping the law or some such thing. We, yeah. Yeah, we never put it that way. So striving to enter through the narrow door is retaining faith in Christ, your eyes set on him and him alone, despite the attacks of your sinful nature, despite the world that tells you jump on the broad path, it'll go easier and better for you. The cross, the suffering you're enduring right now for faithfulness isn't worth it. Um, Or the devil who, of course, whispers all manner of temptation trying to get us off that narrow path. The language of strive and press on and press toward the goal is exactly that language over and against what? These three things, the devil, the world, and our sinful nature. Okay, any other thoughts you have? There's one. Uh, It's certainly true. I, I just wanted to react to what you were just saying. It's certainly true, isn't it, that it is easier for us to perform lawlessness and to reject the gospel than it is for us to do the law or to accept the gospel, right? To accept that we're, we're, we're abject failures at doing the law mm-hmm. and we have to depend utterly on Christ. Both of those things are a lot harder. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, in that sense, the way... You know, the way to salvation is hard. Um, mm-hmm. I wonder, though, the, this idea that Jesus really said that there were fewer that get into heaven than are damned. Is it, is it that definite, do you think? Do you think that teaching is, makes that definite? Uh, if, it, if not that teaching, others in the scriptures. I mean, because, because he says, for example, rich man can or can, it's easier for a rich man to enter heaven than to a camel to go through the eye of the needle. Yeah. And of course, people always say, oh, well, that, he was referring to this gate in Jerusalem that the camels had to kneel down to. No, I think he was referring to a needle. Uh, it's really impossible for us to have it enter heaven without him. Yeah, he uses the language of many are called, few are chosen. Yeah. That would be a more solid sedes to base yeah. the case on. Okay. Yeah. 
general biblical consensus is that, that it's less than more. I mean, unfortunately, right? We know from the scriptures that God desires that all would be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The reality is that many will reject him. Few will, in fact, be called and respond to that call in faith. Pastor, it's 144,000. <laughs> How many spots are left? That's good. That's good. My mind goes to uh, early English literature was based on journeys, like Pilgrim's Progress and that kind of thing. And often when I'm on the freeway, I think, oh, I'm glad I know the way. A map helps, like scripture helps, because there's so many diversions and different ways to go. Yeah. The entire Christian life is put in New Testament context in the, in the reality of Jesus' words as a journey. Um, on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, they're talking about his exodus. Well, it's an exodus that he's leading us through the Red Sea through the desert wanderings and into the promised land. I mean, does anyone really think that the promised land is that dusty, podunked, war-torn place a few thousand miles away? If it is, then why does Hebrews say of those who are made, given explicit promises to inherit the promised land that these died having not received the promises? I think the promised land is indicating something much more. And so, obviously, we are journeying toward the, two, the true promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. That's the promised land that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were actually promised and that they died not having received. And that's same with all of God's people, whether they stayed in Jerusalem for a time or not. That's pretty poor fulfillment of that promise. So, I think we journey through this life as the Israelites journeyed through the wilderness. And of course, then you'll see how many, just if, even if you do the briefest survey in your mind, you'll see how many scriptures tie into this. Your fathers ate the manna from of old. Christ says, I am the true manna, the true bread that comes from heaven. Whoever eats my body and drinks my blood has life. So he's the true manna that comes down. Um, they drank from the, that rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Christ says, drink of my blood and you will have life. So they had, a, they had a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. We have a spiritual food and a spiritual drink. They have a baptism into Moses through the cloud and the Red Sea. We have a baptism through Jesus and the Spirit and the waters. And so our, these things are completely analogous. As they grumbled in the wilderness, Paul tells us not to, not to grumble and complain, not to rebel and reject him in the wilderness, lest as it went for them, so it goes for us. <coughs> In the wilderness, the serpent was lifted up on a pole. And as we're in this wilderness, Christ, the Son of Man, is lifted up for us um, that we might look upon him in faith and be healed. And so on and so forth. You can see all the scriptures really tying into this motif. So God's people are on an exodus. Remember even in Revelation 7 where you get a glimpse of heaven? Who are these? The angel asked John, which is a great question because he knows, but he's just asking John like a pastor asks a confirmation student who are these confirmation student John says I don't know you know these are the ones present tense and continuously coming out of the great tribulation so that exodus is even now leading to the throne of God which is by type a form of the tabernacle 
The tabernacle is to the temple as the intermediate state of heaven, right now when you die, is to the new heavens and the new earth. All right, anything else we want to touch on or should we get back into the Proverbs? Let's do it. We got to make some, got to cover some ground here. Verse 6, the getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. Obviously because God's not ignorant to these devices. So you can lie all you want and get rich. Maybe not. I mean, may God prevent it. (laughs) But all too often in this world, he doesn't prevent it. He allows our wickedness and he allows someone to get treasures by nothing but deceitfulness, a lying tongue. Um, In this life, or certainly at the end of this life, what they have accumulated through their lying tongue is a fleeting vapor. It's gone. And in fact, it's a snare of death, an entrap of death. So as they get what they want, what they're lying for, which is profound wealth, they're now amongst those whom the Magnificat would say, for example, are full, are rich. He feeds the hungry with good things, but the full or the rich he sends empty away. To put it more from an anthropocentric frame, when people have wealth, they don't need God. That's why Christ says it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, is it possible? It's possible. With God, all things are possible. But viewed from that angle, profound riches are a hindrance and a kind of liability to entering into heaven. Because the more you're filled with riches, the less you'll be hungry for God. Now, especially if we're talking about ill-gotten gains, that of a lying tongue, the treasures that come from a lying tongue, then this wealth is just a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. That is to say, it entraps you in death, and you can't see your way out of it. Oh, surely I can. I'll be the one that can handle it. Let me be rich and faithful. But that's the nature of a snare. As a snare ensnares an animal, even, though, even if the animal's being cautious, the snare still grasps hold. So it's this kind of unavoidable danger and treachery of wealth, and especially of of wealth ill-begotten. Okay, so that's the proverb, a warning. Because obviously the way of the world is, get as rich as you can by any means, and uh, that's success. Uh, No, says the Lord, that's a snare of death. Yes, sir. One thing about a snare, the more you pull, the Mm. tighter it gets. Ah, good point. Good point. That's exactly right. I have to use that with my son when I have him in the headlock next time. (laughs) Don't fight it. This is the snare. All right. Uh, Thank you for that. Seven. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away. Because they refuse to do what is just. The, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, that's the next one. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. So their own violence sweeps them away. They're caught in their own trap. 
uh, very common. They, if you give them enough rope, they'll hang themselves. That kind of idiom is in play here. And again, it's just, you don't have to, I mean, I don't know, this is maybe the, the whole world bends the knee to wealth and violence. You don't have to. Christ has set you free from all that. And in fact, you can be, you can, without being condescending or mean spirit about it, you can pity those that are so wealthy they don't need God. And those that are so wealth, those that are so violent, they don't realize the violence that their hands are doing is going to come upon them. You don't, the powers of this world, might and money, don't have any power over you as a Christian. And so you don't need to kowtow to that and you don't need to be frightened by that. So I think that's the comfort here and a good inoculation against sort of this, this thing that we see as might and money are right and powerful and I want those powers for myself. Remember the ring from the Lord of the Rings? I'll use them for good. Okay, eight. Here's a wordplay, but not, it's not easy to do in the way the English constructs it. The way of the guilty is crooked, <laughs> but the conduct of the pure is upright. It's a fun one to think about. Let me see if I can get to the... Okay, so here would be a way to read it. Perverse is the way of a man who is watsar, guilty, watsak, pure, uh, or the one who is pure, um, his work is upright. So what's our, what's act, guilty, pure, that's at the heart of it. It's kind of a beautiful construction linguistically if you get into that kind of thing. Perverse is the way of a man who is guilty, pure, or one who is pure, his work is upright. So then that gets to the, I mean, there's a chicken and an egg here to be sure, but I think the primary sense is that a, a guiltiness of heart a, a, um, leads to crookedness, whereas a pureness of heart leads to uprightness. Now, the chicken and the egg is you can diagnose that. It's like from out of the mouth it flows the abundance of the heart. You see the chicken and the egg nature of that. The heart is perverse, so the mouth is perverse. But likewise, you can know that if the mouth is perverse, so also is the heart. And there's, there's a similar thing. If the path is crooked, you can know that that's being walked by one who is guilty. If the path is upright, you can know that that's being walked by one who is pure. The flip side is guiltiness leads to crookedness. Purity leads to uprightness. Where do we as Christians have our purity? In Christ and in a continual repentance and penitence as we walk with him, confessing our sins having those sins absolved and washed away from us as he creates in us a clean heart and renews in us a right spirit. Thus, we pursue righteousness and justice anew. We fail. We confess. We're forgiven. We pursue righteousness and justice. That's the path. Those are the steps along the journey and what it means to walk with the Lord or be led by the Lord unto the, the true promised land. Okay, I'll just carry on. Nine, it is better to live... Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to get in so much trouble with this one. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Okay, the Bible said it. 
No commentary, no questions. So this, uh, this ties in with other Proverbs we've seen. Of course, everything's twisted and upside down in the whole women's empowerment movement of our day and age. And only the most uh, pious of Christian women are able to see through that and, uh, and, and seek to put feminism to death within themselves and to pattern themselves off of uh, God and Christ and the church and the form of femininity delivered to us in the scriptures. Only godly, pious women are even willing to entertain that and are even willing to entertain a, a, the idea that feminism might be diametrically opposed to that. Okay. One of many proverbs here that talk about the power of a woman in relationship to her husband and her household. The primary vocation of man, we've been through this before, and so I'm not going to go do the proof text, but the primary vocation of husband is, of course, to provide and to protect. The primary vocation of a woman is to love her husband and love her children. It's thoroughly domestic, and that's true whether you work outside the house or not. It's what you're called to. Okay, then positioned as such, a woman has a unique, a wife has a unique power or leverage given to her where she can make life wonderful or terrible. That's the true power that a woman has within her office as wife and mother. She can make life, domestic life, absolutely miserable and fulfill this proverb where the Holy Spirit himself says it is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. A mid-yanim contentious wife, constantly contending, constantly at the throat, constantly trying to dominate, constantly trying to turn her husband into an employee or a task boy. The converse of this is how delightful it is to live with a wife who is not quarrelsome or contentious, but who is what God has given her to be, a true helpmate. And a true uh, delight and love and respecter of her husband, lover of her children, nurturer of the family union and the family bond. And through her love, uh, in some, you know, wears off the rough edges of the man. And there, there is something even biblical to this, I think, in some sense domesticates the man in a very positive way, makes the man want to be at home and behave the way men should behave in the home, to be the spiritual leaders and examples within their homes uh, to their wives and to their children. Okay, so that's this proverb do I need to say anything more? The corner of the housetop can also exist in a man cave or a garage or where, wherever the case may be. So yeah, there's, there's encouragement to godly woman, women. If you would be godly, recognize this power you have to make the home a reflection of the church. Because that's, that's really the, the mystery. Before the foundation of the world, God has in mind a marriage and a family, the marriage of his son and the church and a family. Then he goes about creating man and woman and children to reflect that deeper reality. So when a woman makes her, what is her goal? Her goal is to make it a mini church. That is to say, 
I mean, I'm not talking about like the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments. I'm talking about a place of love and forgiveness and warmth and light. In many respects, the man brings in the raw provisions, but there's a huge difference between food and a meal. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Look at all the food on the table is very different than here is a carefully, lovingly prepared meal. Have you ever wondered why a sandwich tastes better when someone else makes it? I, we, we make fun of this and joke about it, and uh, maybe rightfully so, to not take ourselves too seriously. But there is a difference, like when something is made with love. If the women don't believe this, men certainly do. All of you have eaten a sandwich made with love and a sandwich made without love. They taste profoundly different. <laughs> a sandwich made in wrath and a sandwich made in joy taste entirely different. Worlds apart. Okay, so that's the power, that's the true power of femininity. Uh, read as, the, as sort of the converse or inverse, I don't know which it is, of this proverb. All right, on to ten, and maybe safer ground. The soul of the wicked desires evil. His neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes. So the soul of the wicked desires evil, that is, his inner inclination is toward that which is contrary to God. Um, Very frequently this just manifests as selfishness. But it is, objectively speaking, desire for evil. And then his neighbor finds no mercy in his eyes, so the wicked one is merciless toward his neighbor. That's what this is saying. So he desires evil, that's the selfishness. He can't view his neighbor as he views himself. He can't love his neighbor as he loves himself. So he has no mercy in his eyes toward his neighbor. It's just an, it's just an ugly description. It's an ugly description of fallen human beings. And fallen human beings have pursued the road of fallenness. As opposed to, so what would the converse be or whatever it is? The, uh, you would say that the soul of the righteous one who has been given the righteousness of Christ, one who has been renewed by the Holy Spirit, he desires what is good, and his neighbor finds mercy in his eyes. That's what we would aspire toward, to be merciful. Okay, 11, when a scoffer, a mocker, is punished, the simple becomes wise. When a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. All right, well, just grammatically, technically, probably the first matter is it seems to be the case that a scoffer here is likewise the simple. So when the scoffer himself is punished, he himself is the simple one who becomes wise. So this is more than a fool. This is, uh, or I should say less than a fool. A fool would be completely blocked off. A fool you can discipline and he's just going to become more embittered by the discipline. He's not going to learn anything. But someone who is simple, a scoffer who is not foolish and hardened, but a scoffer who is simple can be punished and corrected. The simple can become wise. And this really should, in all humility, be our prayer. As we should confess before God that we're simple. That though we, though we may be wise in the world, or successful in the world, we are in fact uh, simple and filled with all manner of failures before him. And we should make that confession, and, and our prayer should be that through whatever means, he bring us into wisdom and understanding. He bring us out of our simplicity um, into 
a good, godly, biblical wisdom. And that's a whole lifelong process, you know. Anybody ever thought they finally arrived and become wise and they're never going to be stupid any, or do any? <laughs> I wish that were true. I so wish that was true. Yeah, unfortunately, our whole lives are this kind of recognizing our simplicity, allowing the Lord to discipline us in fatherly love and becoming wise. All right, when a wise man is instructed, he gains knowledge. So he can become a wise man. You know, maybe that's worth acknowledging too. When we're, when we're going against the radical egalitarian of our age, everybody's equally wise and foolish. Nonsense. That's trans, transferred into the church as all Christians are equally wise and foolish. Nonsense. And you know that too, because there's people in the church you would ask advice for and people in the church you wouldn't ask advice for. Hey, so um, there are wise men within the church, and um, that doesn't mean that they're infallible, obviously. And that's what I was just talking about. Even a wise man confesses himself to be a fool and seeks to be made wise by the Lord. But a wise man he is. And when he's instructed by the Lord, you can see a contrast between punished and instructed. One is easy and one is hard. He gains knowledge. So the idea would be to be a wise man. And, then, and a wise man receives the instruction of the Lord and gains knowledge Instead of rejecting that instruction, being stubborn, and then having to be punished. Remember that, remember that psalm, I, I'm going to have to paraphrase it. But it says, be not like the mule, which must be turned by bit or bridle. I mean, effectively, like if I were to translate that, that's God saying, we could do this the easy way or the hard way. We could do this with you understanding the wisdom and following me in this wisdom. That's what I want for you. So I can instruct you like a son and you can be wise and do as a son would do. But if you reject that, I still love you. And we're going to have to do it the hard way. And as you steer a, a donkey with a bit or a bridle, so also I'll steer you by discipline, by punishment, by a certain kind of application of force. Um, because I love you, and I, I won't let you destroy yourself. So this, I think this is a beautiful injunction and something we all ought to ponder in our hearts, um, that the Lord wants to instruct us as sons. He doesn't want to punish or chastise us severely. Um, he will, but he will only because he loves us, and we've left him no other option. Just like you as a parent, right? What parent goes, oh boy, I really want to discipline my children? Wouldn't you rather just say, hey, don't do this, and they don't do it, or hey, do this, and they do it? Wouldn't it be better as a parent? No parent you know, delights in punishing their children. We all want to, them to just hear the instruction and do it. And that's how God is with us. But if they won't hear the instruction, we as parents will impose what's good upon them, and so will God to us. All right, that's it. The Lord be with you.